0: The only thing that i am certain of is that i will do the work that it takes if you put me on a show if you invite me into a room if you ask me to collaborate i will do that to my bones and that is something i actually wish weren't the case
1: welcome back to working i'm your host june thomas and i am your other host isaac butler Isaac, it is always a pleasure to see you, but... It's been a while. It's been a while. There was a while while. when we
2: were seeing each other constantly, but uh, it's been a couple weeks. It's good to be back.
1: We've had a whole fortnight away from each other, but much as I'd love to chitcha chat with you, I have to know whose voice we heard at the top of the show.
2: That was the voice of choreographer extraordinaire Raja Feather Kelly.
1: And why did you want to speak with him now? No.
2: Well, Raja is operating at a a very high level as a choreographer currently. He has his own company, The Feather Theory, with which he's made, you know, groundbreaking, well-reviewed, award-bedecked work. Uh, (laughs) But he's also, over the last few years, moved to choreographing in the far more commercial and collaborative world of Broadway musicals. And so I was sort of interested in, you know, the choreographer mind and how you bridge the gap between what you might call you know, postmodern, capital H, capital A, high art dance, even though I don't believe mm. in the difference in high art and low art. And, you know, something as grimy and popular and corrupted as the, as the Broadway musical.
1: Ooh, yes. And say, did you ask him anything strictly for the ears of our Slate Plus members?
2: It's funny you should mention that, June, because I did. Raja uh, has had a long-term creative relationship, I would say, with the work and sayings and life and wit and wisdom and diaries of Andy Warhol. The Feather Theory has made many, many shows that are part of a loose cycle of Warhol-inspired work. And I was just really curious, you know, what drew him to Warhol? How does Warhol inspire him? And I thought, hey, I'll ask him. And if I do say so myself, I think a really great
1: conversation uh, ensued from that question. I don't doubt it for a minute. What a treat if you're a member of Slate Plus. You'll hear that at the end of the episode. If you aren't, it's super crazy, totally easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear extra segments on this show and others, such as The Waves and Culture Gab Fest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Decoder Ring and of course, you will never ever hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Raja Feather Kelly.
2: Raja Feather Kelly, thank you so much for joining us right here. I'm working to talk about your process.
0: It is a pleasure to be here. You know, I love process. I know.
2: I know. Uh, So let's maybe just start with a really basic question. You know, where are you in your process right now? What, What are you working on?
0: I believe I'm in the process of directing more, actually. I mean, I direct, I choreograph, I am a devised theater maker, and I am in the process of like wanting to lead more projects fully and not sit back or be in the sort of tertiary seat. And, and I'm working on so many projects. I mean, I love, I, I, I dream of collaboration, so I'll never stop working with other people as their choreographer, as their assistant, associate, whatever. I just love making work. But I am in that process of thinking about what it means to be the creative lead more and in spaces where I'm not normally because, of course, I have my own company where I'm the creative lead. And I am working on a number of projects. I'm working on a show that is titled Death loneliness in the absolute future of the multiverse or how to cover the sun with mud and that's a company show <laughs> i'm working on michael r jackson and anna k jacobs new show teeth that's a musical i'm working on carson kreitzer and matt gold's musical limpica and that's probably
2: good enough <laughs> Wow. Uh, now, if if my inbox is correct, you recently presented like a work in progress at the Guggenheim of The Absolute Future. I'm just going to abbreviate it to The Absolute Future, you know, because we have that limited That is time. how we
0: refer to it.
2: So could you tell us a little bit about that show since it's something you just did a public presentation of?
0: Absolutely. I am working on this show called The Absolute Future. It is about a group of sort of friends who get together because they want to go see the Great American Eclipse, which is a real eclipse. And it happens in the Northeast on April 8th, 2024. So my show is about something that happens in the absolute future. And they go to watch the eclipse and they miss it. They miss the eclipse. And my company is trying to figure out how this group of people missed the eclipse. That is, that's all. That's what it's about. Got it, got it. <laughs> and
2: this is with your company, The Feather Theory, which, do you call it a dance theater company? Or is it a dance company? What What is the terminology you, you use for feather theory?
0: It is a dance theater media company. And that's what the three in feather stands for, dance theater and media.
2: Right, right. Because it's styled, that that last E is a is a three, for those of you that's who correct. Not, uh, have not seen it. Um, okay, so where did this idea for this show begin for you what was the germ of it
0: the germ of it was doom scrolling the germ of it was looking through instagram at all hours of the night and i got fascinated by two things on instagram one is the amount of people who start their instagram post with hey i just wanted to hop on and say it was like, everyone was doing that. And I was like, what is up with this thing where one, everyone just expects people to be waiting around for people to post videos of themselves on Instagram. But there's this sense of, hey, I'm I'm reaching out. Like I'm reaching out to everyone and I want everyone to know what's going on in my life. And there was a great deal of loneliness out there. I was like, oh, people are lonely and people are sad. And there is this... World, there is this chasm, there is this universe called social media where people really put themselves out there. And I was curious about creating a work in which I took all of the text in the devising process of that show from social media, from reading social media. And then I started to just craft like the world of like, oh, like social media is a multiverse. And then How does it work and what's happening inside of it? And then I needed the situation. I was like, okay, now that I have this idea about people using social media as like a call for help, how can I situate it into something? And at the time I was doing a residency at the Simons Foundation and met this scientist who told me about the eclipse. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm working on a show right now about the multiverse. And... I was like, I wonder if the multiverse is true. Like, what do you as a scientist, do you think that that's real? And the scientist said the wildest thing to me. He goes, the reason why I think the multiverse is really popular right now is because the world is living in regret. And there is a desire for people to have a connection to like, what if? Like, what if I didn't do that? What if I made this decision? What if I made that decision? And so there's this desire for that that alternate universe where people made different choices and I was so again just obsessed and fascinated that this scientist said that and then that this eclipse was coming and I was like oh I hope I don't miss the eclipse you know I've never seen one live and so that became the situation for the show then to be like okay there's this group of people who are all like probably sad and they're all going to go see the eclipse to maybe have a life-changing experience but they miss the opportunity to do so so what now Mm. now
2: at what point do you then bring it into your company to start working on it like how much of an idea is there how much of a text is there or maybe movement stuff you know like what how finished is an idea typically before you start involving the rest of the company oh
0: It's usually never finished and even until after we've performed it. But I I feel lucky because I've worked with many of my company members for over a decade now. Mm -hmm. And so I feel very comfy to tell them anything. And before we landed on this project, I was like, I want to make a show about Icarus, right? About this like, God that flew too close to the sun and whose wings melted. And so there was something about the sun that was already in the company's ether or like in, in the air of like what the next project would be. And I was like, yeah, what if we retold this myth? And that's where actually in the title, because there's something about it that's still with us, the you can't cover the sun with mud, which is in the subtitle is still with us because there seems to be a connection that we're trying to figure out. So when I go to them, I give them a lot of sloppy mess ideas. And there's a lot of interrogation between myself and them on like, why this, why that? Well, what does that mean? Or, okay, now everyone go doom scroll for five nights in a row and tell me what you find. And I try, oh, wow. to, I try as much as I can to give them opportunities to do the similar process that I'm doing on my own.
2: Hmm. And what about with, you know, movement, because obviously you're also a dance company, you know, with the movement stuff, are you developing that in the room off of them? Or do you have movements that you've worked out in advance? I, you know, how, how does that work?
0: Yeah, good question. Because in my own company, and then also as like a, an experimental artist and or a commercial artist, I rarely make anything before I'm in the room which Mm -hmm. can get me into trouble because there's not a lot of time. And so when you're working on like a big show, they're like, come in and give us the material. And I'm like, I don't do that. I, I look at the people, I talk to the people, I watch their bodies and I make it up usually like on the spot while I'm Right. Them and talking to them, and from there, then I start to craft it. Do a lot of deleting, do a lot of updating, and I usually just start with behavior, not not big body gestures, but just like what is the behavior of the of the people interacting, and how does that how does the volume of that turn up until it's what someone would identify it as dance.
1: We'll be back with more of ISIS conversation with Raja Feather Kelly. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we help our listeners resolve issues with their creative processes. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and leave a message. And of course, if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Raja Feather Kelly.
2: In a recent uh, email to your mailing list, you described your work like this. And I, I really want to talk about this because I think it's so great. We take ideas, strangle them to their essence, embody them, and then tell you what we learned in the process via dance, theater and media, our take on experimental postmodern dance We love making performances in this way. It's not only collaborative. It's such a thrilling way to research cultural values.
0: Wow, I wrote that. (laughs) You wrote that. And I believe that. I'm like, I really believe that that's what we do. Yeah.
2: And I actually think there's a lesson in there for those of us who have to send emails, you know, promoting our work or talking about our work that like, if you actually believe in what you're talking about, (laughs) it's a lot easier to write the... Like if you're trying to trick someone into sampling your work, which I I think and all of us have had that moment where we're like, maybe I can trick someone for sure, and then get a bigger audience. Uh, But if you actually just believe in what you're doing, it helps make the marketing stuff go easier. But um, I'm just wondering if you could take me through like what that actually looks like. You just said some of that in terms of like people's behavior and stuff like that, but like what what that actually looks like over the course of the development process of a piece.
0: Yeah. So you know. The media part of it is there, right? We're, re- we're taking our cues and we're taking a-, a lot of stuff, material, as we would call it, from just doom scrolling and looking at social media. And we're like, what is at the core of this? And it is a sort of test of a theory that is the feather theory, which is how people come together and why they fall apart. That's kind of the essence of everything we do. Like, okay, so what is the thing that brings people together? And what are the reasons, or how, which can be a you know a physicality or a situation? Do they get torn apart? Is it just time? Do they just have somewhere else to go? Uh, is it a fight? Is it miscommunication? Is it information? Is it philosophy? And so, with this work, the part that's like strangling the information to its essence is getting down to like, what is loneliness or what is regret? What is the fear of death and where we learned that. And a cool thread in this production in particular is about cultural phenomena. And so something I brought up to the room was, does everyone remember Y2K? And I was like, I remember, you know, when Y2K was approaching that I was like, we're all going to die. And I was like, excited by that. And other members of the company felt the same while there are some members of the company that are like, Y2 what? <laughs> you know, so therein lies the beginning of disconnect, right? People are like, what? There are two people in the company who's like, what is Y2K? What are you talking about? So then we started to chart just different cultural phenomena, right? If we end at the eclipse as a cultural phenomenon, but we start at Y2K, what is included? And so then you have 9-11, then you have the cell phone, then you have social media, then you have, you know, it just kind of keeps escalating. And these are things that are very huge cultural shifts that in my belief have made us who we are and have driven our sense of personhood, our sense of agency, our sense of understanding what's going on around us and how we relate to that. And each of us feel differently about that and how to get that information out of everyone, how to get that information out into the world and get feedback so we can kind of have a sense of generalization of like, you know, we're studying pop culture. So we're like, how does the mass feel about this? All of that information gathering for me is that strangling, right? And then we're all Mm -hmm. in disagreement. The company is all, it's like, we spend a lot of time fighting with each other to get down to like this is important. This is not important. This should be included. That shouldn't be included. This is meaningful. This is meaningless. Well, maybe the meaningless should stay because then it accentuates what's meaningful. And we do that for months and months and months until we land on like an abstract of how we move forward.
2: And uh, you know, you mentioned conflict in there. You've been with many of your company members for a long time. How, How did you all learn how to have conflict productively? Because there's all sorts of fighting that does not result in great hybrid works of experimental art and instead, you know, winds up at
0: hurt feelings and, you know, disillusioned. So, yeah, we came up with a kind of seven part system that's like extemporaneous, interrogation, debate, do nothing, agility, tension, freedom. And that's kind of the feather theories process. And so if we follow this track of like, okay, just speak your mind. Okay. Then it's about, it's about interrogation. So we're asking each other questions or asking one, and then it's about debate where we can go back and forth. And then it's about doing nothing at all and just letting things sit with you. And then it's about, like being agile with your thoughts and agile with the kind of information that you can bring to this. And then it's about, you know, developing attention, like, well, what's the chord that's like the trigger. And then it's about getting to a place of like repeating that or understanding that that then ultimately has a bit of freedom in the end, like in the end, it's like, okay, I've gone through this process of understanding or this process of argument that ultimately lands us in a place where we're free to have the opinions, free to disagree, free to know that someone else is in agreement with me or disagreement with me and that that is thrilling. And that's what we all, that's what like audiences will thrive on, right? They'll thrive Mm -hmm. on that we're not all in agreement, but we are as a company in agreement that that's exciting and not something to worry about.
2: So, what did you learn from the works in process presentation? And how do you like to use these kind of live performances of a piece that's not maybe finished?
0: Yeah. I usually hate works in progress, not the organization, but the idea. But then I always do them because there is something to be learned. So, what we learned in retrospect, I think, for us was like, oh, our idea has merit, right? I think you've seen some of my other work before in which the ideas are so Russian dolled, right? Like the the chorus line piece, right? It was like, okay, Andy Warhol was gonna make his version of a chorus line in 1975, but he didn't do that. So we made his version of a chorus line that we thought he would have made. And then we made our version based on the version of his that we would have updated had he had made his. And then we're actually just going to perform how we figured that out versus performing our version of a chorus line that was based on Andy Warhol's version of a chorus line that we made because we thought that's how he would have made it, right? Like we needed a proof of concept to be like, are people able to follow what we're doing?
2: Right. Yeah, got it. Which was actually a thrilling piece to be honest. That was that was incredibly thrilling the kind of lecture demo as performance, you know. Yeah, is, that's is... kind
0: of our style. Like I I kind of think we're 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 like a company who performs documentary, right? Because so much of even in this process as well, we're like we have created as a part of our process, we were like let's pretend we're going to write a movie about These seven people who went to the eclipse and missed it, and that's kind of what we did at first. We're like, okay, let's just like make it up, and then we're like, okay, now us as the feather theory has to figure out why they missed it when there's like a big hole in the script. There's a big hole in the script that was four minutes and twenty seven seconds, which is how long there is totality, which is how much darkness there is when the moon shadow is cast over the earth, and you're in the middle of its pathway. So how could a group of people go to, you know, Rochester, New York and sit on a mountain for 24 hours and miss the eclipse? Like now we are investigators and then we are artists and then we are performers. Right. And so that part of it was like, let's just believe that this is true and present this to the audience as something that had actually happened and that exists and see if they're able to follow along. And that's what I think we learned that people were really quite excited by and moved by the idea of like, Oh fuck, like how did they miss it? am am I going to miss it? Like, what does that mean to miss something so remarkable, so monumental? So it takes what is both a metaphor and not a metaphor and it makes people question that. And that's that's exciting. That's
2: great. You know, you mentioned earlier that you have been working a lot in theater. Um, you're a very in-demand choreographer in New York for musical theater and for plays as well. Uh, everything mm-hmm. from, you know, Fairview to Strange Loop and, and on and on and on. Um, that is a situation where you are frequently not the person in charge, right? You are brought in right. to do a job as part of a, um, particularly if it's a show that's planning on going to Broadway, a, a huge mechanism. I, I remember talking to a director who was doing a show on Broadway, a musical on Broadway, and you know they they had done a bunch of workshops of the show because they said by the time you're in the rehearsal room getting ready for the, the tryout run, whether it's out of town yeah. or at a nonprofit or whatever, uh, you have to have figured everything out. There is no... You know, he, he, he didn't like this about it. Cause he has a similar yeah, yeah, yeah. approach to you. He was like, you're not answering questions anymore. You're implementing things you've learned elsewhere. Cause it's so big and there's so little time. And so I'm just wondering about how you've learned to navigate that experience, given your extemporaneous in the room, playful experimental way of building
0: work. Well, I think it's like. When I get into spaces like that, I feel so fortunate to have a company of my own where I do a lot of thinking and I do a lot of developing of language and I do a lot of arguing and I do a lot of taking care of people. And so when I get into a space where it's not my folks, I'm like, very charismatic and you know i can get people to do things quickly and and i do think i do i do think you know i don't want to say that i'm manipulating people because i don't think that i'm doing that but i do like to get people on my side so is that they work with me and so my job although difficult in the manner that I work, that I don't make anything before I get in the room, I find it to be important that people enjoy who I am and enjoy my presence so that when I'm asking a lot of them, they're excited to give that to me. Um, Or when I'm telling the director, like, I'm sorry that I didn't come here with 108 counts and that, you know, I know the music has been done and I know I could have done that, but I'm going to make it right now that they trust me So that I can have my process. That's that. That's I I feel very fortunate. The people that I've worked with understand my process and they trust me. And that allows me to go in there, work very quickly, work very efficiently and get it done in the way that I do it. That is just that's exciting to me. But if I didn't have a company and I didn't have that practice of the like interrogation, debate, uh, tension, do nothing, extemporaneous, agility, repetition, freedom. I don't think I would survive those rooms. Those rooms are a lot about problem solving. And I think that's also what postmodern dance is. It's like create problems and solve them. And that solving is the development of the creative muscle so that you're able to, at any juncture, solve a problem creatively, not with like a Band-Aid, not as a placeholder, but creatively solve a problem.
2: What do you look for in your collaborators in theater? Like, you know... What to you is a useful kind of director to have and a useful kind of feedback or agenda setting?
0: I feel like this term gets thrown around a lot, which is thought partner. I have been with directors who manipulate this term in order to get you to do more work. And you all know who you are. Um, And then some directors who I love working with and will continue to work with, I think use that term because they mean it where they're like, I really want to think this out. I really want a partner. I really want support. I really want friendship. And it might not be lifelong friendship, but friendship in the room in such a way where you're like, we are determined to do this together. We are determined to do this together and to think mm-hmm. through it. Not just make it for the sake of making. Like in my in my experience, you very rarely get anything back. And so the process in the room and how you communicate and how you realize an idea is like so delicious to me. And I choose collaborators when I'm smart who know that and who make that an exciting experience for everybody.
2: You know, one thing that's very clear, I think, you know, for people listening to this interview is that you know your worth, right? You know what you are good at. You know what your process is. You know you're charismatic, uh, which I can attest to having been in the room with you many times. Um, How did you come to that kind of place of self-assurance and self-knowledge? Were you always like that? Did you graduate from Connecticut College being like... I'm very charismatic, and I know that I'm good at doing things in the room. Or was it just through you know repetition? Do you have a great therapist? You know how did how did you come to it?
0: I think that it's a balance. I think that I have. I, I do think that sometimes I know what I'm doing. I do think that sometimes I am charismatic. I do think that sometimes I know how to find a problem and solve it. And I think that sometimes I am just, you know, very good at what I do. And I also know that sometimes I'm not, I don't know, I sometimes I'm not that. And I, th- I think that that's the balance. I think if the only thing that I am certain of is that I will do the work. I will do the work that it takes. If you put me on a show, if you invite me into a room, if you ask me to collaborate, I will do that to my bones. And that is something I actually wish weren't the case like I am like I will work all night I will read everything I will you know I'm so committed to being an artist in a way that I can't actually escape even it's something that I thought would slow me down is having a kid I have a seven week old and I have done like four shows already then I have like been to Hamburg I've been to Philadelphia I've been to DC and and I've opened two shows in the city already And I'm like, I will keep my kids safe and healthy and make the art, you know, and I'm just, I'm dedicated to that. And I think going back, I think like, I I know, I, I do know what I'm good at because I know what I'm not good at. And I'm very happy to lean away. I'm happy to say, I don't know. I'm happy to be like, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I'm happy to be like, that is out of my jurisdiction. Ask somebody else. And having that balance makes me feel comfortable with knowing the things that I'm good at. Or or as you say, like knowing my worth is like not knowing. I'm repeating myself. But that's that's what I think that comes from.
2: That's amazing. You know, dance is a wonderful art form that I think people feel kind of intimidated about when they go to see it. So I just got to ask for our listeners who might feel that intimidation – what's some watching dance one one they should think about, you know, what are some questions they can ask as they watch a work of dance or as they leave so that they feel as a, as an audience member, more part of the the whole thing.
0: Yeah. I think that it is important to take dance at face value, which is to say, how does it make you feel? And that's probably close to the direction for, what it's trying to do. If you're just having a good time and you're like, this is fun. That's probably what they're trying to do. They're probably trying to create a mood via the body. If you look at something and you're like, I have no, I fucking deal. What is going on? Chances are, they're probably trying to get you to do a little bit more work than just watch it and enjoy it for being pretty or entertaining. If you know, like those are kind of like two tracks immediately. That's like, you know, it's either for you to enjoy or for you to participate. And sometimes it can be both. You know, I certainly feel like I try to do both at the same time. But dancing is meant to inspire feelings, I think. I've never said that before until right now because I'm trying to be concrete. But, I'm, but I think that that is true. I'm, I'm setting a mood. I am maybe creating a scenario and I am thinking about you, you being the audience. And I either just, I, I might, maybe I want to make you have a good time, or maybe I want you to lean in and do more. So then, if I'm asking you to lean in, I think it's even more important that you take it at face value. What is happening? Just ask yourself, what is happening? Verbs, use verbs and adjectives. That person's touching that person. That person is pushing that person away. That person is lifting that person. Those descriptors and those, to do's are telling you what it's about. There's, Amazing. Uh, otherwise, it's probably not that great. <laughs> <laughs> true,
2: true. And it is true that sometimes you just see work that's not that good.
0: Sometimes it it's just not that great, which is okay. Sometimes people are still figuring it out. You know, like sometimes yeah. uh, and I myself sometimes I'm like, I don't actually know what this movement is about just yet. And This might be a placeholder and you might be seeing something that's a placeholder until I figured it out or until you've given good feedback. Like, I felt good about this. And then when that person lifted that person, I was confused. I bet you the choreographer's like, me too. It's just a placeholder. (laughs)
2: Well, Raja Feather Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on working to talk about your process. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: I've had such a good time and I would I could talk about this for maybe 48 hours nonstop. Then I would take a quick nap and then I'd do it again.
2: Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.
1: Up next, Isaac and I will talk about knowing when you're ready to take on a leadership role in your career and how to work with big, potentially overwhelming emotions.
4: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Oh my God, Isaac, that was spectacular. At the end when Raj said that he could talk about process for another 48 hours, my first response was, please do, and I will gladly listen for another 48 hours. Uh, I'd like to begin with something that he said almost in passing, which was that he felt ready to be in the lead more in his work. In the performing arts where he works and where you have done a lot of work, that probably means directing, but that feeling can arise in a lot of different work situations, an office job, a store, and I think stepping away from a full-time job to focus on writing books, which is something you did, is a similar urge Do you have any advice for someone who is sensing that they're ready to take more of a lead role in their career or indeed in their life?
2: I think the most important thing is actually to try to be as concrete about it as possible, because it's really easy for all that stuff to be in the sort of emotionally dominated, vague realm, right? There are specific things that you need to make that leap. You know, in Raja's case, I'm not going to, don't want to speak for him. I'm just, theoretically, it might mean like, you might have to find the right script that you are shepherding from in development. Or, you know, if you read uh, the biography of Jerome Robbins, you can see how he did it, how he went from being a choreographer to a director, right? You might have to be the one who generates the project yourself and then hires writers to do it, whatever it is. So figuring out what the things are, you need to be able to make that jump. And then like literally listing them, you Mm -hmm. know, and then making a plan for how you're going to get each of those things. That's Mm -hmm. really important for a lot of us, including me. That has to do with money. Right. The real issue is is not I mean, it's very easy to quit your job to then have uh, (laughs) free time to do whatever you want. It is harder to do that and eat. Uh, And so, you know, that's the thing that you have to figure out. Right. And so what often if you have a full time day job, what that means is, you know, try to figure out what the financial picture is going to look like, which almost certainly looks something like making a little less money for a while and then having you know a quarter or a half of your working time be doing things like teaching mm-hmm. or freelancing or you know whatever it is. So so just really figuring that out and being really honest with yourself about what you do and do not need, I think is is really, really important.
1: Wow. I was also struck by the extent to which Raj's work grapples with huge emotions, loneliness, regret. Concepts like that can feel overwhelmingly huge. But when he mentioned loneliness, I realised that in many ways, the key struggle that my upcoming book concerns itself with is loneliness. The work we do, the risks we take, the money we spend, the alliances we form to avoid loneliness. And I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, but it's there. Isaac, was there a big emotion at the core of the method or in the new book that you're working on now?
2: Oh, wow. Uh... I'm stalling because I don't know immediately <laughs> what the answer is but no it's interesting because you know another interview we did where that was brought up was Dan Hornsby who says that he sort of picks a big word that is the slogan of the book and then mm-hmm. you know formally a lot of stuff kind of ties back into that um, I, I don't normally think of my books that way although I also think a lot of times we understand the work after it's done rather yes, than while yes. we're making it you know yeah. and then in interviews we like to sound like we had the plan all along <laughs> but actually it's, it's only at the end um, so now that I'm in that reflective moment, I do think the thing that unifies the various strands of the method is the search for the truth. You know, everyone in the book is trying to find some version of the truth. What is truthful performance? What is truthful writing? What does it mean to tell the truth? What is the value of the truth? You know, they're really circling those questions and and they get really consumed by it. My new book that I'm working on right now, and, you know, I'm deep into research, but, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not at the drafting phase yet. It's about the culture wars in the 80s and 90s. And, and I guess that word is probably freedom, you mm. know, because the way the, the right, the American right, phrased it was about taxpayer freedom. You know, taxpayers should yeah. not have to fund work that they find defensive or obscene, right? And to the arts advocates, it was about artists having freedom to express themselves however they see fit, et cetera. So it, it, it's probably somewhere in there.
1: Oh, that's now. I'm now obsessed with this exercise. I'm going to be going around trying to apply words to works of art. Yeah.
2: We should call it a sloganing. Is that what maybe? I don't know. <laughs>
4: yes.
1: Yes. There's a process in the scrapbooking world called one little word that you pick a word that's going to kind of define the year and you kind of keep coming back to it throughout the year. Um, but uh, I don't know if it's going to catch on in, in cultural journalism. Uh It was impossible to listen to your interview with Raja and not notice how systematized many of his processes are. I mean, the seven part system for processing conflict, the foundational question of figuring out how people come together and why they fall apart. Clearly, he developed these systems over a number of years. It's something that seems to be just a natural part of how he gets work done but I'm curious to what extent you develop processes and systems like that. Is there one driving question or a series of questions at the heart of your work?
2: Uh, You know, it's funny when he said the thing about the seven part system for processing conflict in the back of my head, I was like, that's June Thomas, babe. June is just gonna, (laughs) she's gonna make a meal out of that. She's gonna love it so much. And you Um, were right. I think that Look, Raja has a company, right, a, a, yep. a, with longstanding collaborators he's worked with for a long time. And I definitely think in that environment, it's really valuable to have systems for doing things that you all agree upon, even if sometimes it can feel uh, a little too precious or a little weird or whatever, because it helps you depersonalize the conflict and the collaboration because in any long running relationship, like a lot of weird resentment boils up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you're having conflict, you want to be having it about the thing you're actually having it about and not about Mm -hmm. something someone said at the bar after the show five years ago, you know? (laughs) And so those kinds of systems are really helpful for that. I think that there are certain questions that I return to a lot in my work. Um, one of them is is something that I call for want of a nail, um, which you may know that old proverb, right? For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost, et cetera. And, you know, eventually the king dies as a result of this one nail um, missing. And I always try to think about that with the story I'm telling. What are the nails? Like, what are the little contingent things? where if that had gone wrong or hadn't happened, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. I'm always looking for that, and the structure often comes from that. So to give an example, you know, the first book, the one I did with Dan Coyce, is an oral history of Angels in America. So the biggest contingency with Angels in America was actually Oscar Eustace had to meet Tony Kushner. And these are two men who have been best friends for decades. I mean, they're almost like siblings. (laughs) They're very, very close friends and collaborators. But they had to meet in order yes. for this to happen. And so when you ask that question, how did they meet? What you discover is it's like a really weird story. Oscar was living in San Francisco. He happened to be in New York at the time. He was going to see one play, but he got the curtain time wrong, and so he missed that play. And the only play that he could make the curtain of happened to be by a then-unknown playwright named Tony Kushner. And then in that play, they sang the Internationale at some point point. <laughs> Oscar was, was raised as a communist. Uh, and so during the Internationale, Oscar started singing it from the <laughs> audience. And then the two of them became close friends after that. Right. So it's like part of what makes those details so delightful is like if any of those things had been different, then none of the rest of the story would be would happen. And so it takes this funny little story and it charges it with a lot of power. And so that's an example of the kind of question that I'm always thinking like, oh, so where's the nail here? First of all, oh, my God, what a story that,
1: that is yeah. going to. That is going to rattle around in my head for a long time to come. Um, I love the question that you asked Raja about kind of dance watching one o one, and of course, I love that he had such a polished and practiced response. Yeah, you know, um, I've often noticed
2: that artists in these fields have a really practical response because they yeah. view a lot of it and they view it really practically. It's like, what interests you? What doesn't interest you? Yeah. The question doesn't change whether you're watching, you know, something really abstract or something really concrete.
1: Yeah, and really, what's more basic than how does it make you feel? Like, yeah, exactly. Ah. What's more important? But Isaac, I am curious if you have any reading cultural history 101 advice. I I think you are absolutely correct that people are particularly intimidated by modern and postmodern dance. But books about cultural movements and moments can be similarly daunting. What would you say to someone who is interested in a topic, but then finds themselves staring at a big, heavy volume that seems just a wee bit overwhelming?
2: and it's called The Method How the 20th yeah. Century Learned Act uh, <laughs> no. I just say I've, I've written one of those big volumes and I will so I will say a couple of things from the perspective of a big volume <laughs> guy a big volume boy B-O-I <laughs> Um, first of all, the tomes are shorter than you think. They almost always have one to two hundred pages of back matter, like Indeed, notes, yeah. index, bibliography, stuff like that. And so the book is actually less long. Often I would go to the bookstore and I'll see a book that looks like it's like over five hundred pages long. And then I actually look at where it ends and it ends on page like three fifty. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's a normal length book in a really big package. Um, the other thing is, and I again, I say this as someone who tried to write like the definitive cultural history of something. Yeah. You don't actually have to read the big important book right off the bat. You do, and I, I'm not even saying my book is important. I'm just saying it's big. Uh, yeah. You don't have to read the big important book right off the bat. Actually, what you need to do is find the thing that gets you interested in the subject matter. So find the story that interests you within that that. Milieu and read about that. I'll give you one example. Let's, and it's going to come with some recommendations. Mm-hmm. Let's say you want to know more about the history of musical theater, right? You could read, there are really big tomes about the history of musical theater out there. There are gigantic biographies of people like Jerome Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, yes, of course you could do that. Or, you could pick up Cassine Gaines' incredible book When Broadway Was Black, which tells the story of an early all-black musical called Shuffle Along, and you'll get all sorts of stuff about the era in that and the transition from the the review musical to the book musical uh, and and all sorts of other things about the milieu of musical theater in the first few decades of the 20th century. Or you could read Elisa Solomon's Wonder of Wonders, which is a history of the musical Fiddler on the Roof and is maybe 300 pages, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you read that that book about Fiddler and you get really interested in Jerome Robbins who directed Fiddler and he really spearheaded that project and everything like that. Well, then you can move on to the big tome and read a biography of Jerome Robbins. And from there, you might be like, oh, Arthur Lawrence who wrote the book for Uh, West Side Story sure seems like a spiky character. Well, guess what? Arthur Lawrence wrote a really uh, bitchy memoir that's really fun to read. So you could read that next. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, like, if you just keep following your interest, you will get deeper and deeper and deeper into it. You do not have to start with the College 101 syllabus textbook or the Oxford history of whatever it is. You start with something that just sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you were talking about, you know, the the 200 pages of back matter. you know, a lot of those are taken up by footnotes if it's if it's that kind of book. And, you know, if you're working on a piece of writing or researching, it's great to look at those notes and really dig into them. That's where you find the interesting pieces that lead you down rabbit holes. But if you're a regular reader and you, you know, you don't need to know, uh, you know, the PhD dissertation that that reference (laughs) came from, it's still worth flipping through those to find those books that keep Keep coming up, and those are the books that are probably worth checking out. You don't see many of those kind of Oxford Book of Musical Theatre type uh, books referenced in footnotes, but if you start to see the same book over and over, read that book. That's probably going to be a good one. Yeah. Today, Isaac, you were full of amazing advice. Thank you. But. I've got to pull the plug on it. No more advice from you today, because you know what? We've reached the end of the show.
2: That's interesting. Do you have a last piece of advice for our listeners, though?
1: I sure do. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And I would love to remind you that by joining Slate Plus, you will get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
2: Thank you to Raja Feather kelly and to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews, who is always light on his feet. We'll be back next week with Kristen Meinzer's conversation with home stager Nikki Watson. If like me, you're like, what's a home stager? Trust me, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Until then, get back to work.